let's get started. Uh, I want to thank everyone for joining us today. I think we're going to have a very compelling, interesting discussion about this topic. The topic is the medical Stasi. Is risk management for controlled substances destroying the provider-patient relationship? Um, in terms of introductions, I'm Dr. Paul Christo. Paul Christo, I'm from the Johns Hopkins School of uh, Medicine. I'm um, one of the pain attendings there. I've been there for about 13 years or so in the pain division. Uh, I have to my left an esteemed group of um, panelists who in their own right have achieved quite a bit in various different elements of what they do. Actually, let me, um, well, here are the slides, so I'll go through the slides. There we go. I'll start with Dr. Howard Height. Dr. Height um, is an assistant professor or associate professor at Georgetown University School of Medicine. Assistant, okay, thanks. Assistant professor um, at Georgetown University School of Medicine. He really is one of the pioneers, along with Dr. Gourlay, in terms of our understanding of pain and addiction. And he and Dr. Gourlay are going to talk about the clinical aspects of the patient-provider relationship. <clears throat> and then we have Dr. Steven Ziegler. And hang on, let me just make sure that I get all the credentials correct because they're not all in there. Dr. Ziegler is an associate professor in the Department of Public Policy at Indiana University and Purdue University. He is our ethicist for the discussion. He's going to talk about the ethics of the relationship between the doctor and the patient. And then Jennifer Polin is our last discussant. She uh, is the founder of the legal side of pain. She's a well-known attorney who has been presenting on the legal aspects of pain at this conference, at multiple conferences for many, many years. And she's going to discuss and help us understand and gain insight into the legal risks to us as healthcare providers with respect to opioid management, discharging patients, reducing opioids, inheriting patients. So with that, let me give you an introduction, if you will, to, well, okay, in terms of the disclosures, the disclosures are on the slide. It looks like Dr. Gourley doesn't have any, either does Dr. Height. I have some there. Uh, Jennifer doesn't have any, and Dr. Ziegler has some as well. I won't go through all those, but you can read them there. We do have uh, three learning objectives, and we want to make sure that you, well, we're going to try to explain the challenges of risk management. Uh, with respect to the use of controlled substances from a clinical perspective, from an ethical perspective, and then a legal perspective. We're going to describe the uncertainties associated with the current risk management tools, including urine drug monitoring, and then describe the concept of a high dose. What does high dose opioid mean? Does it mean 90 morphine milligram equivalents per day, as the CDC says, or is it higher than that? How does that apply to opioid pharmacotherapy? And how does it apply to new strategies um, and challenges? with respect to these opportunities for opioid management. I want to first talk about the advantages and disadvantages of opioid therapy, just to consider them. Because right now in the media, what we hear, unfortunately, is a lot of the disadvantages of opioid therapy, the risks of opioids, that it's leading to deaths, it's leading to overdose, it's leading to addiction. We're really bombarded, I think, in the media right now by those messages. And some of those messages, I think, are true, but others are not. And I think that what we're not hearing are some of the advantages of opioid therapy. Many of us who prescribed opioids in this panel and also in the room know that opioids can be effective and are effective for chronic non-cancer pain, not only for a, maybe six months, but probably for several years. Do we have any data on that? So let me just talk briefly about the advantages of opioid therapy. What are they? 
Well, if you think, for example, I mean, imagine an opioid molecule, imagine a morphine molecule, and imagine the morphine molecule standing up with two hands. One hand on the left has a weight, and that weight represents pain care. It represents the 100 million Americans in this country who suffer from uncontrolled pain and who are in need of relief. The other hand of the opioid molecule represents the disadvantages of opioids, deaths, misuse, abuse, addiction. And I sort of feel like opioids are on trial here. Maybe Jennifer can comment on that later. But opioids are on trial in the sense that you've got the opioid in between these two counterbalancing forces. And I think what we're going to talk about today is how can those forces be balanced? What are the risks to us? And are those forces destroying the doctor-patient relationship? If we think, for example, now about the advantages of opioids, you know, we know that chronic non-cancer pain is a health problem. Opioids do provide one treatment modality for pain control. If you look at some of the data, again, I think a lot of this is not represented. It's not discussed in the news, in the print, media, television, or on the radio. But if you look at some of the data from the past, like a meta-analysis, for example, that looked at 41 trials of over 6,000 patients, that demonstrated that opioids were effective, that 80% that of the time, if you will, opioids were effective in nociceptive pain conditions. That is, patients who had osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, or even low back pain. That opioids were effective 12% of the time in neuropathic pain conditions, like postherpetic neuralgia, diabetic painful neuropathy, and phantom limb pain. I mean, I have patients who have these conditions right now, for example, who are on opioid therapy who benefit. And this meta-analysis, again, of over 6,000 patients demonstrated that opioids were effective in 7% of patients with fibromyalgia. Now, we hear, we're hearing also in the literature, we see in the literature that opioids are not recommended for fibromyalgia. Don't do it. In practice, however, those who prescribe for patients, see patients who have intractable pain, fibromyalgia can be one of those, know that opioids are effective in a subset of patients for fibromyalgia. So if we look at the... The, from this particular study, for example, the authors felt that opioids were more effective than placebo for pain, functional outcomes, in patients with nociceptive or neuropathic pain or fibromyalgia. I think that's important to consider. Again, we don't really hear how opioids can be effective in clinical settings. The dropout rate in this study was 33% for patients who were on opioids, but was even higher for patients who were on placebo, 38%. So I think in this study, it was demonstrated that opioids were effective in not only nociceptive pain, but neuropathic pain and even fibromyalgia pain. The limitations are there. The study just, you know, I mean, the treatment, the treatment duration was just five weeks, and we didn't have any clinical data, or there was no clinical data beyond 16 weeks. And that's one of the criticisms, I think, that we see, that we hear about in the literature anyway. You know, we have no data on the value of opioids greater than, certainly greater than a year, much less 16 weeks. What about patients who have end-stage osteoarthritis, who are in need of joint replacements? These are patients who have intractable pain of the hip or the knee. If you look at some of the studies on that, and one in particular that examined over 600 patients, indeed they are effective. These, these are patients who are in their 60s, who had end stage, who were in need of joint replacements, who had intractable pain and severely limited function. They were on medications that were World Health Organization level two and above in terms of opioids. Their pain scores were about five out of 10 with therapy. They examined tepensitol versus oxycodone versus placebo every six hours 
for 10 days. And their outcome was pain reduction. The results? Tepentadol and oxycodone were more effective than placebo in that population. So do we really want to withhold this therapy in patients like this, end-stage osteoarthritis, who are in need of joint replacements? And we know that opioids are effective in those patients based on some of the studies. I don't think so. And the conclusions of the authors in that study were that patients with uncontrolled osteoarthritic pain who were awaiting joint replacement, in those patients, tepentadol was not inferior to oxycodone, and it was associated with improved GI tolerability. So I would say this in terms of the advantages of opioid therapy that we don't hear about. Based on these studies, based on our clinical experience, that opioids are effective for, well, at least the data indicate up to 16 weeks duration. But we know clinically that it's much beyond that. I mean, I have patients, and Howard and Doug, I mean, you know, we all have patients who've been on opioids for years who benefit functionally. We just don't hear about it. We don't see about it in the literature, unfortunately. And I think despite some of the evidence, or despite the absence of confirmatory evidence beyond 16 weeks of opioid therapy, in successful patients who have a compelling rationale, who don't have a compelling rationale for discontinuation, that is addiction or misuse or abuse, that with appropriate monitoring, urine drug monitoring for example, that there is a favorable risk-benefit ratio that can endure for certain subsets of patients. So I think that's something to consider in our discussion here about the advantages of opioid therapy that we don't hear about. Let me just take a moment to talk about the disadvantages because we hear mostly about the disadvantages. And there are some, there's no question about it. For example, deaths. Well, there's been a quadrupling of deaths from opioids in the last 15 years. And if you read some of the literature and you hear what's been discussed, we're at fault. Healthcare providers have failed to consider the addictiveness of opioids, their low therapeutic ratio, and their lack of effectiveness. What about opioid promotion? Today, that's not as much of a force, I guess, as it was in the 1990s with OxyContin. It was aggressively marketed in 1996. Sales growth grew from 48 million to 1.1 billion in the year 2000. And that correlated with an increased risk of abuse and diversion and addiction. In fact, OxyContin was a leading drug of, uh, drug of abuse in 2004. And if you look at the studies, the randomized controlled trials, what did they show? They didn't show any efficacy difference or safety benefit over immediate release opioids or extended release morphine. And there were some misleading marketing efforts that were targeted to physicians and high prescribers at that time. What you hear about, too, in the literature in terms of the disadvantages of opioids is that we really don't have a strong evidence base. In fact, that it's poor. Most randomized controlled trials are just six weeks or less. And we have no comparative long-term data, long-term meaning greater than one year, that demonstrate effectiveness of opioids versus other treatments and pain and quality of life. And in fact, several studies show that opioids worsen pain and function. And how about the opioid overdose risk? Is that significant? Is it real? Well, if you look at the literature, some of it is real. For example, opioid deaths, opioid overdose deaths and overdose risk doubles between 50 to 99 morphine milligram equivalents per day. It increases by a factor of nine at 100 or greater morphine milligram equivalents per day. You look at other data, it shows this. One out of 550 patients starting opioid therapy died of opioid-related causes only 2.6 years after that first prescription was given. This is the data that the CDC, the FDA, and so on examines and uses to sway us against the use of opioids, or at least make us very, very cautious about using them.
And I ask you, is there any other medicine that's used for a non-fetal condition that kills patients more frequently? We can discuss that because that's something that's, that's a question that has been posed to the CDC and to the FDA. Another, another element to opioid prescription, uh, opioid deaths, for example, is what it's doing to children. If you look at some of the DAWN data, the, the Drug Abuse Warning Network data, on ED admissions for accidental prescription opioid ingestion by children just five years of age and younger, what do you see? You see that there's been a 225% increase in that since 2004. And again, this is data that the CDC and the FDA are examining. So the CDC says, why not consider non-opioid therapies first? Why not do that? It makes sense, right? They're better tolerated. They're superior to, for improving function and improving quality of life. There's little to no risk of addiction. And they significantly lower the risk of overdose and death. What am I talking about? I'm talking about medications like acetaminophen, NSAIDs, pregabalin, gabapentin, tricyclic antidepressants, SNRIs, like duloxetine. And the CDC says, look, we need to start focusing on exercise. Get patients to exercise. Get them to lose weight. Get them to the psychological therapies, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and certain procedures, certain injection therapies, because these can result in better outcomes than opioids can. Is that right? Is that true? Let's, dis let's discuss that today. I'll ask that of the panelists. I'll ask that of you. Do you feel like that's accurate? Should we be, should we be advocating those particular guidelines? Should we be advocating those particular therapies for patients? Well, there's a lot to discuss. There's a lot to think about, I think, with respect to advantages, disadvantages of opioids, and opioid therapy and how that affects the doctor-patient relationship. The format will be this. What I'll do is I'm going to ask each one of our discussants to present their particular item, uh, their subspecialty interest, if you will, for five minutes. And then after that, there are several questions we want to cover, about four or five. I'm going to ask the panelists those questions, and then I'm going to open up the discussion to the audience, to you. So, and, but don't get offended, please, if I have to cut you off, because we have two hours, and I know we're going to have tons of questions. So I will probably have to cut you off at one point. Just don't get offended. Okay, so let's start. I'm going to start with Dr. Howard Height. Howard? I would like to give, I would like to give a... I would like to give a brief review of the clinical journey of opioid pain management over the last couple of decades in five minutes. <laughs> or, the other, yeah. or the other point is how did we get into this mess? In 1980, Porter and Jick published their seminal paragraph, notice I said paragraph, in the January issue of the New England Journal of Medicine. They reviewed over 39 cases of hospitalized patients looking for narcotic addiction. They found 11,000 patients received at least one narcotic preparation. None received take-home medicine, none were on chronic medicine. From this paragraph, they concluded addiction is rare in patients treated with narcotics. Now you look at this, page, this paragraph in, this, in the New England Journal and you say, well, nobody's gonna follow this up. Up until May 24th of this year, this, this paragraph has been cited over 900 times in the literature. 
Now, when it first came out, Scientific America said in 1990, an extensive study. Sorry, Doug, the Canadian family physician said 1995, the data was very persuasive. Time Magazine in 2001 said this was a landmark study. And in 1989, the NIH monograph said, consider the work. And during this period, it was also stated by key opinion leaders and national organizations that opioids would not cause addiction, especially in patients who are suffering from chronic pain who do not have a history of addiction. In other words, pain was an antidote and protective against having the disease of addiction if you did opioids. Thus, the decade of 1990s was introduced pain, the fifth vital sign. Opioids were declared safe in our pain patients without any good data to support this contention. The era of non-cancer pain with opioids began. The pendulums swung far to the right or left, depending upon your political leaning. And we had cytosis. The decade of 2000 was declared to be the decade of pain control research. The hallmark of this de decade was the misguided interpretation of the pharmacological principle that prescribing a full mu agonist, such as an opioid, meant there was no ceiling, therefore there was no limit of the milligrams could be prescribed. Four pills were good, eight pills were better, 16 pills were actually orgasmic. <laughs> the present decade has not been given a name. I suggest maybe the decade of fear and uncertainty in opiate pain management. How about the decade of morphine milligrams equivalents? Or maybe the decade of regulation over education. The pendulum has swung to opioid cytosis to opioidpenia. And now the patient has difficulty in getting pain relief that is valid and that they need. In Doug and our opinion, this all started because we forgot to have the decade of education in pain and addiction medicine before this all began. And this year, the nation's largest medical society, AMA, is recommending that pain be removed as a fifth final sign in professional medical standards. A move critics say will either make it more difficult for pain sufferers to have pain properly diagnosed and treated. I call this, don't ask, don't tell. And how did that work out? So who is caught in the middle of all of this? Well, it's the prescriber and, of course, his or her patients who have chronic pain. What should I do as a clinician when a patient comes to my office with a chief complaint of moderate severe pain? Am I first a doctor? Am I a doctor policeman? Worse, am I just a policeman doctor? Is the patient guilty of aberrant behavior until proven innocent? Am I judged on what I know as opposed to what I should know? Should I have Jennifer Boland come and review my practice monthly to make sure that's bulletproof? <laughs> Dr. Doug Gorley, my friend and colleague, had the original idea to organize this workshop and discuss the clinical, legal, ethical management of chronic non-cancer pain management and some of the issues that we all discuss. So with that in mind, let's go further. I wasn't going to say anything except uh, that I'm Doug Gorley and I'm an anesthesiologist and also a pain and uh, addiction specialist. Um, but just like at home, uh, I find myself, uh, somebody else speaking for me. And that's not unusual. Uh, Howard and I have done a lot of good work together. But I just wanted to say that I think this meeting is necessary not because there isn't a problem, but because there is a problem. And uh, the urgency that I perceived in, in addressing the unmet need of inadequately managed pain caused us to do some things that were just not very sensible. Uh, in retrospect or for many of us along the way. And I think we have to be very careful that today 
uh, we take time to consider the options because if we don't provide regulators with better choices than what we have in the past, we are going to be regulated more and more. And that will not be to our benefit, nor will it be to the benefit of our patients. So with that, I want uh, Stephen Ziegler to talk about uh, ethics. When we talk about uh, ethics, uh, start out with this. Uh, in 1989, uh, New England Journal of Medicine, Sidney Wanzer and his colleagues noted that to allow a patient to experience unbearable pain or suffering is unethical medical practice. While the AMA, for example, does not represent all physicians and, and there's a variety of healthcare providers who can prescribe, they are a good resource um, for this discussion. And um, in a June 2016 draft, they note that the practice of medicine is fundamentally a moral activity that arises from the imperative to care for patients and to alleviate suffering, which is the baseline. The relationship between a patient and physician is based on trust, which gives rise to the ethical responsibility to place patient welfare above the physician's own self-interest. Now, when we talk about medical ethics, uh, I'm going to be going back to the traditional uh, common principle-based model um, throughout this discussion. And it's a framework I will use here. And when we're talking about that model, we'll start out with this, the first principle of beneficence, about what is the best for the patient. That's what we really need to explore. Because you have a fiduciary act, a fiduciary duty to act in the patient's best interest. So what is, what is best for them? We're going to hear a lot about that. Secondly, um, do no harm. And that can be interpreted in a variety of, of ways. Third, justice. And when we talk about justice to consider, another principle is think about fairness. Fairness to the individual, about the equitable distribution of resources. So when we have these ethical dilemmas, this framework helps us process those uh, that dilemma. And then finally, this notion, the final principle is respect for autonomy, which is self-rule. Now, the way that we can demonstrate respect for patient autonomy is through this notion of informed consent. And when we talk about informed consent, it's about discussing with them the risks and the benefits of a particular treatment, the risks and benefits of not doing that treatment. And that's so that they can make an informed decision about what they want done to their body. Now, related to this is this notion of what is known as epistemic humility, which I think is important because when we're talking about epistemic humility, we're talking about knowledge and humble, uh, humble recognition that we do not know everything. That's kind of scary for practitioners to admit, but there are some things that are not knowable. And perhaps maybe a third prong of informed consent is to disclose that to your patients. You know, I mean, the real clinical trials begin once the FDA approves the drug and then gets into the pipeline. And so a lot of times we have a general sense of what's going to happen when the drug is pro used as, as, as prescribed, but that's not always the case. So epistemic humility recognizes the limits of our knowledge, and it could arguably be the third prong of informed consent. Now, um, when we talk about this framework for ethics, is in any type of, there are multiple theories, multiple approaches um, to ethical consultations, but at its baseline, oftentimes when, when we evaluate um, a particular problem, we, we gather facts, we identify inter interested parties, we determine patient preferences and interests, determine care and treatment options, we clarify assumptions 
Beliefs, values at the individual and institutional level weigh burdens and benefits. And when I was on uh, St. Joseph's Hospital's Medical Ethics Committee, we certainly, like many ethics committees, will make recommendations or come to a decision. Now, a few more words. Uh, in the topics that we will come up in this subsequent discussion, um, the subsequent thing may be of, of assistance. I'm here to tell you that it may be understandable why some of you will under-medicate or try less effective treatments to reduce pain and improve function out of a fear of regulatory scrutiny. Nobody wants to get investigated. You know, I mean, uh, no one wants to knock on the door and the government's saying, we're here to help you. That's not going to be pleasant. But such a response not only violates several ethical principles that I've enumerated above, it creates an ethical duty also to challenge the current regulatory environment the way that it is, instead of just going along. And in fact, the AMA recognizes this by saying a physician, and that applies to, and would apply to all healthcare providers, shall respect the law and also recognize a responsibility to seek changes in those requirements which are contrary to the best interest of the patient. Now, I'm also, not only am I a social scientist, but I'm also a, trained as an attorney, which means that I've been subjected to three years of organized hazing in law school. So what Jennifer and I will be asking questions of the panelists as well, not only so much in a Socratic method, but the devil is truly in the details, that, because change the facts and you can change the outcome. Now, some of my responses will be rhetorical. Maybe looks like I'm trying to cause trouble. That's not my intent. My understanding, of course, that this was going to be very much like Bill Maher's roundtable, just is my understanding without the profanity. So um, with those final words, I will turn it over to Ms. Bull. Maybe without the profanity. All right. Hi, y'all. Um, I want to give you a visual, and if you're taking notes, it may help to think about it in just a minute. In the case of United States versus Schneider, a case out of the District of Kansas, there were at least 56 overdose deaths associated with the prescribing of opioids. And in the sentencing of Dr. Schneider, the uh, federal judge said something that's very relevant for you to keep in mind. And it's not really a burden. It's something that can allow quite a bit of freedom if you think of it in a positive or proactive manner. Under the federal law, when a judge sentences somebody who has professional training, the sentencing guidelines allow for an enhancement of the sentence, tacking on additional prison term, if that individual defendant has breached the position or duty of trust. So the practitioner is in a position of trust over the patient. And if I could have a freestanding mic, I would show you that when you seek balance and you're trying to look at legal responsibilities matched against clinical responsibilities and the ethics of everything, you will never, ever, ever have a 50-50 equation with the patient because of the duties and because of how the law looks at you. But part of what you do as you embrace determining whether or not a patient is a good candidate for opioids or any controlled medication is you're going to take steps toward that 50-50 relationship. You're taking steps to give the patient 
information so they can make an informed healthcare decision. And the more that you do that, the more there becomes a balance. It will never be equal, as I've said, but that's the visual part one. So the law doesn't say that the patient is primarily responsible once they get the opioids. It doesn't say that, but you can actually take the lessons of the law, the rules and the guidelines that you might have in your state and apply them in a way where you can shift some emphasis to patient responsibility. And I think that that in some way is a successful route through some of the trouble that we're having now. Um, I want to say that if you were thinking of a meter, and yesterday I used the example of the riscometer, right? I had the green, yellow, and red. Today I want to change the meter perspective just a little bit from a legal perspective and say that on either end of the meter, this end, fear, that end, defiance, both of those are red zones as practitioners and as law, okay? The, both of those zones can get you into trouble. As you come up toward the middle from either side, there's a yellow zone. And that yellow zone may indicate a lack of education on your part, a lack of full commitment to looking at what your state says you should be doing from a regulatory perspective when it comes to prescribing opioids to treat pain. And then ultimately, when you embrace certain things, and it doesn't mean you have to agree with everything, but you at least take that responsibility on and act that way towards your patients, you get into this balanced or this green zone. And it'll always tip a little bit either direction. The defiant is very, very dangerous. The fear is very, very dangerous. And we really want that at the middle. The last visual, from a legal perspective, think of a pyramid. The base of the pyramid is law. All right, law gives rise to rules and regulations. Those are in the middle of the pyramid. Rules and regulations are in some of your state licensing boards and they contain language like things you're supposed to do. You shall do this, you must do this. And then at the top of the pyramid are the guidelines and position statements where we often have a lot of disagreement. Those things can be used to enforce the law as it relates to your license. Um, I'm going to make a couple little comments and then, of course, we'll add to the panel here and give you an example. One of the things that I often hear is the issue of overdose risk and evaluating patients, especially when it comes to the consideration of uh, prescribing an naloxone uh, injector kit or spray kit. Uh, a lot of doctors have said to me, out of what I call this fear side, Jennifer, if I do this, aren't I labeling them at risk for overdose in a way that makes me guilty of something because I've done that? That's, that's a little bit fear-based, but it's a great question. And from a legal perspective, the answer really depends on the framework that you're operating within in the state. And, and so there's a lot of discussion points there. Um, on the other hand, I've heard people say, I don't need to do that. It's my patient's responsibility to use these things appropriately. I don't need to consider the naloxone kit. I don't need to educate them on that. That's their duty. That defiance is also troublesome when it comes to seeking balance and 
embracing the position of trust and doing things uh, the way that you were taught as clinicians. So a lot to add to that, and I just want you to keep that visual in mind as you seek to determine where you are and as you fight for that balance. And, and really, I think that there are good ways, once you start to learn and get that knowledge, that knowledge turns into power for you, that power turns into balance, and that helps you conquer uh, with your patients on board in a good relationship this, this troubling issue of both the potential opioid abuse but also the rewards of treating chronic pain. And as a chronic pain patient, myself, my son, my husband, um, we so much appreciate what you do and we do understand the, the fear and the environment and um, you know, we hope that, that patients will embrace you and learn that they too have a responsibility. Great, thank you all very much. Let's now consider the first question. And I'm gonna ask Howard <laughs> this question and Doug, but let's start with Howard. And it's related to whether a patient has the right of non-disclosure of certain aspects of their lives. That is, if a patient comes to you and you go through your checklist of items clinically and uh, you ask the patient, do you have a history of substance use disorder or addiction, and the patient says no, is that okay? I mean, does that patient have a right to say that? I think the patient has a right to say it, but I don't accept that. <clears throat> what I want to do when a patient comes into my office is determine my responsibility to the patient and the patient's responsibility to me if I'm going to prescribe a controlled substance. I want a free and easy relationship, but the patient has been burned many times. How many people raised their hand know of a patient who went to a doctor, the patient was up front with the, with the doctor, and once he was up front with the doctor, the doctor said, I can't treat you. You have this, you have that. How many have, that, have heard of that? So the patient becomes sensitized. He says, gee, if I tell the truth, I'll be punished. So the patient, you have a job to establish a good doctor-patient relationship with your patient. I'll tell you what I do. When I have a new pain patient come into my office, I say, I need to know everything about you so that I could plan the appropriate treatment plan for you. I don't care in the parking lot before you saw me, you shot up with heroin, drank a quart of gin, took amphetamines, snorted cocaine, and took a couple tabs of LSD. It will not be held against you because you weren't my patient then. But if you want to be my patient, you have to tell me what's going on so I could do my best to formulate the best treatment plan possible given the reality of your situation. So the patient, I don't think, has, legally has to tell me everything, but I think that it makes it difficult for me to, to treat that particular patient with a controlled substance. And I want to establish, and it's up to me to establish a caring doctor-patient relationship that's bilateral that the patient understands that if he or she tells me something, I will use that information because most of the information they give me is treatable. And I tell the patient also, you cannot, I'm old, you cannot tell me anything that I've not heard before. And if you do, you get 10% off your initial visit. <laughs> so that's what I do. I would take a slightly different position. Anyone hear the phrase, trust me, I'm a doctor? Trust is about a process of, of building a relationship with people, and I don't believe that relationship begins uh, with the first introduction. I, I, I think people know 
that our intentions may be good, but it takes time to understand. And, and the analogy that I would, I would make, and this is why I think this question is so important for me, if you had a patient who came to your practice with pulmonary disease and you asked them as you should, uh, do you smoke uh, tobacco products? And the answer is no, but you looked at their hands and you saw nicotine stains. Your suspicion as a clinician might quite reasonably be that, well, maybe they're not being fully forthright with me. Why? I'm not sure, but, but I don't think they're being completely truthful. And I asked my wife, who's a family doctor, what's the likelihood your college of family practice would suggest it reasonable to go and do a urine drug screen for cotinine? Against the patient's wishes, perhaps, in order to confront them with this information to prove that they are not being truthful to us. And the answer, of course, from a family practitioner's perspective is, of course, we would never do that. We would build trust with the patient. We would ask the patient, what are the barriers to sharing information? We might actually ask why the, the inhalers aren't working as well. And we might find that there are many different reasons why that person doesn't feel, at least initially, comfortable discussing the fact that they continue to smoke periodically. And what, what that leaves me with is then not the value of urine drug testing, but the implications of imposing it as a therapeutic intervention. If a regulator says, you must get a urine drug test from your patients if you're going to provide uh, controlled substances, I can live with that. But I can also then say to the patient, if you are going to have trouble providing a clean specimen, one without cocaine or illicit substances, then I can help you work with that. And that further, in my mind, enhances the therapeutic relationship. But simply proving, I mean, it would be analogous to... Uh, a hemoglobin A1C in a patient who says their glycemic control is, is good. You wouldn't take the hemoglobin A1C uh, information and shove it back in their face and say, Mrs. Hoffnagel, you lying son of a gun, you're hitting Dunkin' Donuts again. <laughs> we wouldn't do that. And, and, and I think we need to develop some balance between the information we gather and why we gather it. It's disingenuous for me to have a, a doctor say, well, I can't prescribe a controlled substance to somebody who's using marijuana. Why? Uh, well, uh, I can't be sure of the interactions between those drugs. In my mind, quite honestly, and I'm pretty good at this stuff, that's nonsense. You can't do it because you're afraid of the re regulatory impl implications of doing that. And I'm okay with regulatory implications being an important part of our practice, but let's shift the responsibility to these risk evaluation and mitigation strategies to the side that's demanding it, and perhaps even dare to say, can you prove that they're helpful? Because I think that's where we've, we've got to go. Otherwise, we're going to have a group of regulators saying, of course we don't practice medicine. That's up to you. But we're going to, include, we're going to force you to do things that effectively alter the way you practice medicine. And I think that's more insidious. So that, that's, the, that's the challenge for me. I personally think patients do have a right to non-disclosure. And if we force them to lie, I think we at least have to consider the fact that maybe we're generating the aberrant behavior and own our side of the equation. Well, we uh, certainly, uh, my take on that is, uh, it's not that I, I disagree with the panelists um, here in that regard. One of the first questions is that, of course, why are you asking the question? Is the question related to their medical treatment? Is there a question related to somehow some regulatory environment? And then if it is the regulatory environment, is it really? I mean, uh, I've heard of enough data that, that people would say, well, I'm required to do this because the state law requires me to do that. Well, in actuality, that's not the truth. 
So why are you asking these questions? And we realize that trust is essential to the therapeutic relationship. It, it fosters more trust, whereas distrust fosters more distrust. And um, if the patient is hesitant about disclosing certain information, as like um, Howard pointed out, is th they've been through the mill. If you've got a chronic pain patient that you're inheriting um, from somewhere else, is that they've, they've already been down this road. And as Howard points out, is that they may have disclosed that information and they ended up getting burned by it. They ultimately, it's, it's almost like a little bit of coercion is like with torture is that, um, you know, at my workplace is that the beatings will continue until morale improves, right? Well, it's just the same thing with confessions is that if you get a, out a hose and you're going to torture me until I confess, I, I tell you what, just put away the hose and I'll, I'll confess to whatever you want me to confess to. Because bottom line, these patients see you as a form of relief, not, e not euphoria. And they're trusting you with that. And so, as Howard says, is that if you're going to be asking these questions, tell them why you're asking these questions. And um, if, um, in this idea of about a urine drug test, uh, is a urine drug test necessary? Uh, is it required? Is it really required? Well, what happens then if, um, are they always reliable? Um, and what happens if you find something that you don't like? What are you going to do? And at the same time, what Jen will probably comment about is, is it a don't ask, don't tell? Can we claim ignorance? Do we not ask the questions? Um, that can certainly set up your own liability. So very much the theme that I want to press on this is this idea of balance, is that the government does come up occasionally with some good ideas. The road to hell is paved with good intentions with the government. But oftentimes the implementation and the actual feet on the ground situation usually is, does not go as intended. And unfortunately the government doesn't take precautions that are foreseeable and they don't follow up to solve those unintended consequences. So these are just some things to think about. Don't ask, don't tell, huh? That's not a good idea. Um, well, from a legal perspective, when you think that there might be some right of non-disclosure with a patient, what the prescribing rules and guidelines in most states are really getting at is a slow dance. A slow dance between you and patients, even if they're inherited. And there are times, certainly, in a, a clinical relationship with patients that you might need to sprint, uh, dance quickly, whatever you want to attach to it. But when it comes down to the prescribing of opioids, you have raised your right hand, so to speak, that's my left, but raised your right hand and promised DEA and promised your licensing board that you're going to do certain things. You're going to prescribe for a legitimate medical purpose, do it in the usual course of professional practice, and take reasonable steps to prevent abuse and diversion. The win or the balance is in realizing that certain of your licensing board directives are mandatory. They're mandatory dance steps, all right? You have to do them. And some licensing boards say that you have to take these dance steps before you prescribe. So you need to know what your licensing board says, and that can help you still do the things that, you know, everybody's spoken about here before me, um, but also meet your licensing board or professional obligations. I do think that after you adhere to the mandatory provisions and mandatory dance steps, that there's always room for optional 
ways or your own style in going about this therapeutic relationship. And the licensing boards really aren't there to comment upon that. And if you're going to delay asking a question to the patient, maybe delay the drug test uh, to the second visit or something like that, then you should explain why in your, your, your rationale, in your documentation. If your board says you shall do a drug test before you prescribe a controlled medication and you've inherited a patient that's coming in on controlled medication, you're going to have to find a balance, a way to reconcile that to meet the therapeutic and, and relationship and ethical goals while at the same time showing your willingness to abide by the laws or the rules. And that's a difficult process, but the more that you explain your rationale and you're not running away from it, you're not being defiant about it, the better off you usually are. Because a, a, a peer who would review your chart like in a regulatory proceeding, they might not agree with your decision, but they can see that you were thoughtfully approaching the relationship and taking steps to make things safe and do no harm to the patient. And there are many ways to do that with an inherited patient or a new patient. It's all about the slow dance. One of the questions that comes to mind, uh, Jennifer, to me is, well, if I haven't asked that question about whether a patient has a substance use disorder, or if I've asked it and they haven't been honest with me, and I prescribe an opioid, and then there's an untoward consequence as a result of that, an MVA, for example, who's liable? I see this in paperwork, so I'm going to go back to the paperwork. Oftentimes I see uh, questionnaires you give to your patients, and when I review charts, I'm looking for blanks. I'm looking to see, did the patient answer? Did they give you a, a statement that ended up being false? Or did they not answer the question and nobody went back to look it over? And you have to, to really approach the process of the answer to your question that way. But you can't say, I'm not going to ask because I, I, I just don't want to in, uh, interfere with the relationship right now. You can't get away with that forever. What ends up happening is you get called an ostrich, and your head goes into the sand and your butt gets kicked. And in, in a legal perspective, that's called reckless disregard. So it can really end up in trouble. And the marijuana is a good example of that. A lot of people will pull marijuana off of their testing panels. I don't want to know. I don't want to deal with it, I, blah, blah, blah. That's defiance. All right, there's a middle zone, find it. Okay, Doug. Yeah, I, th I think from a clinician's perspective, it's also important to remember that there are a lot of myths out there about why it's not useful to ask certain questions because people always lie. The, the common one is, what, if you ask about alcohol, whatever it is, double it. Well, the reality is most people don't lie about what they think is normal. And if you ask questions in a non uh, judgmental fashion, recognizing that they may or may not be fully truthful to you. It's still, in my mind, incumbent on you to revisit this because risk is dynamic. You know, it's, it's like the person who does a, a screen, a battery of tests to determine initial risk, which we all would say is less than perfect but absolutely necessary because it's the best we have right now. And yet, then I get a phone call saying, I've got this challenging case, a very low-risk individual in the past three years and drug screens have been positive for cocaine. That's like military intelligence to an expert. Uh, you can't say low-risk and cocaine in the same breath. What that really means is that your numerical assessment of risk at the time you asked it now has to be tempered with the reality. And this is why we say, 
that the risk that the uh, the diagnosis of addiction tends to be a diagnosis made prospectively over time, and that's why I think the tedious point and the and the balance point that that ethics and, and law are talking about here is how to show somebody who's interested in looking that you recognize that you have to continue at this. Is, would that be fair? And, and in recognizing that, it allows you to build a trusting relationship with the individual without forcing them to lie or feel like they've lied. I had a, a fellow who told me, and, and my criteria is Elvis or aliens. If Elvis or aliens are involved in the excuse for the positive urine drug screen, uh, you know there's something wrong, desperately wrong. And this fellow told me the absolutely craziest story about uh, why his urine was positive. And I remember walking away without challenging him. And a couple of weeks later, he came back and he said, you know, I want to be honest, uh, that's, that didn't happen really as I told you. And I, I asked him why he told me that. And he said, because I got to thinking about it, you're only here to try to help me. And I told you an absolute lie, and I actually feel badly about that. Now, that builds trust as opposed to... Uh, pressing something that isn't really necessary. You can tighten boundaries in an uncertain situation, which will convey to a, an individual who's investigating you or reviewing you that you're aware of the limitations, the epistemologic humility that we don't know as much as we wished we did. Uh, but at the same time, allows you to tighten the boundaries and essentially limit the damage of that uncertainty. And you can do it always in the name of safety. And when you document it as such, uh, the patient who, who says, I don't want you to be safe with me, is telling you a pretty important story, and it's not a good one. Just one last thing in regards to this question. No matter what you choose to do, document it, document it, document it in a chart. If you don't document it in a medical legal rec record, it's a figment of your imagination. And also, when you're documenting it, Keep in mind, if somebody read this and didn't know the patient, would they say that you thought this through, made a decision, and, they, they, and as said by the panel, they disagree with the decision, but knew that there was a thought process in doing it, and it's well documented. Great. Thank you. Before I move to the next question, any questions about this topic of non-disclosure from the audience? Does anyone have any questions about this? Do we have a microphone, or should I just go down? We have one? Okay, great. Testing. He's going he's gonna to walk down. Bless you. I think we're right, right here. Yeah, just raise your, raise your hand if you would, the front. Thanks. I would imagine I get different responses from each of you, but it's very common for patients to be very honest and upfront and say, I'm going to answer your question, but I do not want you to write it in my chart. How, what are your recommendations? From a, from a practical perspective as a clinician, it, it's not so much if you didn't ask, it didn't happen. It's neither fair to the patient nor yourself not to, to document information. That information you may think will harm them may in fact be the information that saves them down the road and becomes a mitigating circumstance in, in their defense of a substance use disorder or disability. You have to be honest with the patient. For example, Doug, speak in the microphone. A, a doctor got into terrible trouble in Ontario with a patient he referred to me because he told the patient he was doing a urine drug screen simply to make sure the drug that he was prescribing was being absorbed. And of course, when it came back positive for cocaine, 
and also positive for the wrong opioid and not the opioid, the opioid that was being prescribed wasn't there, he took offense. This is a professional, he's an accountant, and he felt lied to. And he was a hair's breadth away of, of a complaint to the college. Now where that would have gone, I don't know. But the point is, it, it wasn't necessary because you simply say, you have to tell me what you tell me, understanding that it becomes part of your medical record. If it ultimately is found to be non, not true, we can revise that, but I can't selectively document because I don't know whether what I'm not documenting is gonna har harm you or hurt you. It's a mistake to think that documentation uh, can potentially be a problem for your patient. It's much more likely to be a problem for you and your patient if you don't document it, in my opinion, anyway. Well, it also conjures up this idea of society versus the individual. I mean, what's best for the patient? It, these notions of society versus the individual need not be mutually exclusive because you don't want to do any harm to your patient. You want to do it in your patient's best interest. And that may be, certainly, they're not mutually exclusive, and those both of those things could be addressed by recording that in the chart. Now, now some... Now, I, I, I don't want to go off on a deep end here, but I mean, there's not, with electronic records, it makes it a little bit more complicated. And the reason why I say that is prior to electronic records, uh, there would be a separate sheet in the chart, but it would be charted, you know, and so, but it just raises those questions. Jennifer, any, any thoughts on that? I agree with what Doug and Steve have said. Um, you know, documenting facts is important to that relationship. Documenting in a way that doesn't label the patient unfairly is also important and sometimes that might be what they're really saying I don't want you to label me as X I want you to explore the relationship with me I want to trust you first and it really depends on you could add a million facts and I might change what I just said because facts are important to lawyers but it, you do need to document those facts and if somebody's asking you not to that begs more questions and create more problems for you a, a, a positive cocaine is a piece of information the label addiction may or may not be right. And in fact, even the positive cocaine may need uh, you to pick up the phone, call the lab, and do a little bit of further investigation to make sure that you're not picking up the uh, epistaxis that was treated on the weekend by, uh, by the emergency room doctor because of the baseball uh, nasal bleed that the guy suffered. There are lots of pieces of information that need further illumination, but when you talk to the patient and you tell the patient you're going to work these things through, uh, you tell them that you're on their side and that you're trying to help them and you understand what's really going on. We have another question back there in the blue shirt. Thanks. One of the things that makes documentation a little tricky is I know that there are different categories of documentation that are not releasable to insurance companies. and um, and I don't know if that was more so before Obamacare or, or, or now, but I know that there, that there were like particular things in the chart were not releasable. And if you put something in your note, which is something which is not releasable, how does that work with the transfer of information in the future? I think that there's something like a, that, that they're in substance abuse counseling or something like that. Not releasable to whom? that they need to, to, need to um, sign a release for this to be available. And, I, and I, I know that there were two categories of things for certain stuff, like I think urine drug screens weren't generally available or whatever. Well, what, what we would do is we would redact information that was not appropriate for release. And if a court deemed that that information had to be released, 
then we would do it on a lawful court order. You know, the, the, the reality is how you manage the information is different than collecting the information. Failure to collect information is almost always worse for the patient and for the doctor. In my experience, it's this blind conclusion that has absolutely no support, but then when you find off, off record what really went on, it makes perfect sense. And had it been properly documented, there would have been no question. Um, so whether there are HIPAA uh, concerns that may require redaction, at least intermediately, and then when it goes to a lawyer or an insurance company, if they say you can't redact that, you say, fine, get a court order. And, and that's the process that works, right? Okay, great. And consent that's coerced is not, is not really very good. So if you have a patient who is going to be harmed by that information, it's not uncommon for a patient to say, I want you to do urine drug tests, but now I want to apply for the military. Don't tell them anything about that. They can't ask a clinician to uh, provide information that would cause a reasonable person to come to the incorrect conclusion. That's not our job. And I would add to that is that what Doug is speaking about and the question here is this idea of collateral impact. And, um, and it's wrapped up in these drug screens as well because what the information that you do document, make, and it seems simplistic when I say this, but make sure about its accuracy. And the reason why I say that because of those potentials for collateral impacts. There are some docs out there that are tapering down their patients in response to this opioid um, hysteria situation, but instead of noting taper, they write detox. That's a major problem, major problem. And so what happens is that now these patients who are being tapered for whatever reason, not detoxified, are now labeled. And that has collateral impact and damages. And then finally, further too, is that when we talk, when you call the lab about a positive drug screen that you're concerned about, I have colleagues in the, in, the, in the lab community, and they say, you know, a lot of times when you call, it's just who answers the phone. So make sure that you follow up on those things because things may not seem as, as they appear. We're going to do a session uh, on Friday, I think, uh, loosely called Trainwreck. I spelled Trainwreck incorrectly, and it was Trainreek. And I actually gave that talk in New York, not knowing that I'd misspelled things. But the purpose behind that is to help people understand how to assess irrational pharmacotherapy and exit from it. And the challenge in America particularly, no other jurisdiction that I know this exists, is that the term detoxification is enshrined in law and requires certain requirements that most of you in the audience probably don't have as, an, as opiate treatment providers. It's completely lawful to titrate up to maintain or to titrate down, which is referred to as tapering, even if tapering is to zero. But it's not lawful, unless you're an OTP, to detoxify a patient using opioids for the disease of addiction. And, you know, these, I think, are traps that are so interesting. Um, they're, they're, they're traps that clinicians can inadvertently fall into. We've heard experts around, uh, around the states in various uh, jurisdictions, key opinion leaders, say some things that were absolutely wrong from a legal perspective and, and simply because they didn't know that the, the words matter very much in America, especially when you're looking at buprenorphine and data 2000 with an X versus buprenorphine off-label according to the Dear DEA letter which Howard Height was a co-author on that said yes, from the DEA's perspective, buprenorphine can be used off-label, but you don't put an X in front if you're treating addiction or if you're unqualified to treat addiction to opiates, and you 
don't treat a patient who is an addict with an unexed DEA number because it conveys the wrong piece of information. Let's take one more question on this topic right there. My question is regarding marijuana and <laughs> cocaine. Uh, some of the patients will say, but doctor, this is uh, legal in this state. So a state has legalized and they're not getting arrested for carrying, carrying marijuana. That's one part one. The other one is if somebody in their initial interview says that they used it 10, 20 years ago and they're not using it, they're sober and they're working. And so is it necessary to document in your record because once the record goes to someone else, you're not accepting him as a patient and he might not get accepted. At the other, uh, as a physician, I mean, you have that caring uh, quality as well because you're there to care for the patient. Now, for me, cocaine is a red line. Uh, everything else they can get away with, but once the cocaine shows up in the urine, they have to get off of my service and go somewhere else, find it. Is it too harsh? Uh, because I heard in some uh, cases people document and just one uh, violation does not mean anything, maybe looking for more violation or giving them some leeway. Uh, I just wanted your opinion. Do you want to take this? Why don't we get the clinical opinion first and then we'll do yeah. the opinion. Number one, I, if I have a patient have an unexpected positive for cocaine, that's a treatable disease. That's a medical problem. So that patient will not be kicked out of my practice. Um, I think Doug feels the same way. But Howard, let me add that that I don't. Th I think for most practitioners, that's not true. I think unfortunately that most you know pain specialists would say, okay, they're positive for cocaine. This is illicit. You're out. I'm not going to prescribe opioids anymore. And I need to, you know, and you're out because you guys are trained in addiction medicine, but a lot of practitioners are not. Okay, quick question. How many of you think cocaine is a Schedule One drug? It is not a Schedule One drug. It's a drug with a very legitimate medical indication. So firstly, keep that in mind. The second point to keep in mind is you can fire a molecule without fear of being accused of abandonment much easier than you can fire a patient, which could easily open you up to uh, claims of abandonment. There are false positives, there are false negatives, there are mistakes that are made at the lab, but I think one of the things Howard would agree is a urine drug test is a great opportunity to open up a dialogue with the patient. And I would consider a patient who said, you know, doc, <laughs> look, I just do the odd lines of cocaine and I have a constitutional right to, to make that determination. I'm patient-centered healthcare. Sure, they have a constitutional right in that context, clinically, I would say you have a, uh, a fiduciary responsibility to not provide tradable uh, commodities such as controlled substances that they will eventually translate into cocaine or, or crack. So how they manage that, on the other hand, if the person said, you know what, doc, <laughs> I make, I've made bad decisions, I'm under a lot of stress, you can refer that person on to uh, an alcohol and drug treatment program a person who's using cocaine almost always has problems with alcohol, and if they're having trouble stopping cocaine, it's almost always because they're continuing to drink. Those are things that clinicians can easily address. Now, what do you do about the opioids? As I said, in certain jurisdictions, abandoning the molecule would be the first and most logical thing to do, and I agree with Paul on this one. However, an equal opportunity would be to just tighten the boundaries. 
and give a week of medications or a few days of medications contingent on that person picking up the phone and making the appointment with the drug and alcohol treatment program. I would suspect that clinical decision would be uh, viewed acceptably. On the other hand, I'm firing you and I give you 60 days of medication, don't grace your face on my property again, will almost certainly get you into deep, deep trouble because you can't give a big bottle of pills for the road as a part of a, of a, part of a way of uh, sort of mitigating the damage you think you might uh, incur. Fire the molecule for safety, you will never get into trouble. Fire the patient and uh, you're liable to much more uh, critical review by your colleagues. I'll just add really quick that when you look at it from a legal perspective, you're talking to me, we're you know, in your office, I'd say basically different way of what Doug said. You have two issues, divide your paper in half. You've got the cocaine issue and you have the opioid issue. Your license and your DEA registration are looking at the opioid issue. The, 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 the scope of your practice, the whether or not you can handle something internally regarding the cocaine or need to activate the consult referral, that's that side of the house. That's a lot more clinical. When you go down the regulatory side, the fire of the molecule is fine. The control is part of firing the molecule. Control as in, I'm only gonna give you a little bit, I'm picking up the phone, we're also gonna get somebody else involved. Coordinating care is critical to that. Your rationale documented is the most critical piece because the feds, if they are reviewing your records for any reason, uh, their experts don't tend to have much of a sense of humor. And they want to look and see, did you really follow up and kind of hand walk this through the zone? Because if you didn't and it dropped, then you're gonna have some issues. And if you ignore it, you're gonna have some issues. So there's really, you know, that's kind of the legal piece. And that same analysis applies with the marijuana from the Fed's perspective, because it's illegal federally. And so if they don't have a sense of humor about something else in your practice going on, or they see a pattern, they are definitely not gonna have a sense of humor about the marijuana. And I've seen that play it out over and over again in the case law from medical experts testifying on behalf of the government saying the marijuana was ignored it's illegal federally, and this person with the DEA registration went forward and did ABC. That's how they'll talk about it in the federal regulatory environment of DEA, and then, God forbid, the criminal side of it. The licensing board tends to have a little more room, but not a lot, if there's other issues. So, There are many ways to approach this problem, many ways, but there's one absolutely wrong answer, and that is to ignore it and not document it in a chart. Do not ignore it. If you do, you're doing it on your own peril. And the, and the peril Good. I'm sorry. Let me move to the next question. I know that there are questions additionally. Yeah, everyone will be around afterwards for additional questions as well that we don't get to. Let me ask the next question, which is, what opioid dose is considered too high? Because we have the CDC guidelines that are saying to us, well, we need to carefully assess evidence of benefit and risks when increasing to 50 morphine milligram equivalents per day. 50 is not that high. And then we really need to document and demonstrate evidence if we're gonna to go to 90 morphine milligram equivalents per day, carefully justify it, and really don't exceed that. So, yes. An interesting observation. If any of us were to take 50 milligrams of IR morphine, 
the very best we could hope for is to be on our rear ends, and in all likelihood, some of us would die. So it's interesting that we've reached a level of desensitization that we're comparing 50 milligrams as being low and gram quantities of morphine as being high. And I've lived through that entire transition. So I'm not being critical, Paul, but, but it's an observation that we think of things based on how we compare. You know, that joke I made about the uh, two cases of beer versus one case of beer. I'm the designated driver in my group because I only drink a case of beer a night. It's all relative. So I think as a clinician, we have a tendency of looking at, at arbitrarily, especially seemingly arbitrarily uh, defined limits as uh, intrusive and, uh, and adversarial and probably without value. The fact is the stats show very clearly that as dose of opioid goes up, risk goes up. Where you draw the line becomes a matter of, of debate. But there is some evidence that above 120 milligrams, there's dramatic increase uh, and perhaps arguably an unacceptable level of increase. The other thing that happens, we know, is as you go higher and higher with any therapeutic, the probability of achieving your treatment goal diminishes. In, in the parlance of Vegas, you start making bet after bet after a bad hand. And, and the hard thing about a line in the sand is seeing it for half full, not half empty. Because in my mind, when you look at that line in the sand, you can take that to the patient and say to the patient, you know what, we may be accepting a level of risk here that isn't necessary. And so while, I, again, it, it's tempting to sort of feel, well, we know that, uh, that full agonists have no ceiling. That's a pharmacologic principle, guys. Everything has a limit, and the limit is always determined by the balance between adverse effects and, and uh, treatment effects. And so if we ignore that, regardless of whether we feel the morphine equivalent daily dose is a, a clinically useful or scientifically valid term, it's a, it's a way of loosely, not for the purposes of, of rotating from drug A to drug B, but to loosely say, this is a lot, this is a little, this is somewhere in between, and perhaps use that information to motivate the patients for change. You know, if a patient were, for example, to say, well, I, I enjoy smoking pot, and they were on a moderate dose of opioids, my question would be, could I use that interest in continuing on with marijuana as an opportunity to leverage them out of the opioid class of drugs? You know, life is about, and patient-centered care is about making choices. Our job, I think, is to inform the patient as best we can about those choices and the consequences. But I know you've all got patients, when, when you talk about alcohol, they say, so when I'm going to drink at New Year's, I should just stop taking the opioids for a few days? How, how, I mean, does that make sense to you? Does that not tell you that the marijuana or the alcohol is playing a much more significant role in their life? than apparently the therapeutic agent you're controlling, you're, you're prescribing for them. You have to reflect that back and say, you know, a lot of people continue to drink not because they want to, but because they have to. And let's, let's ask that magical question. What would your like, life be like if I asked you to stop drinking for three months? And some will say, no problem. And some will even come back and say, I quit, and it was no big deal, and that'll be insightful. But some will come back and say, I quit, but boy, was it hard. You know, I think the only thing I have in common with my wife is she could drink as much as I did. And she did on many occasions, and it bothered me greatly. And others will come back and say, you know, I've really cut down, Doc. 
but I know you didn't mean New Year's, and I know you didn't mean my wife's anniversary. And, and you reflect that back to the patient and say, well, no, I actually meant exactly what I said and what you agreed to do. And you can use that to motivate change. And I, again, I think uh, Jen would probably agree that if that was properly documented, that's a reasonable intervention to help balance the role of drug A versus drug B, where I'm prescribing drug A and drug B is perhaps allowable in a certain state under one set of regulations and perhaps prohibited at a federal state. But we have these guidelines now, and I think this is what's, this comes up over and over again. We have these guidelines advanced by the CDC that use the number 50 and use the number 90. So the question is, you know, if we exceed these numbers, are we, is that, are we posing a risk to ourselves? I think certainly from a medical legal standpoint, it's one of the questions that I would have. Well, the point, I would, Okay, well, I would I comment from an ethical uh, standpoint. We start out with this idea, then we say, is the opioid dose too high in general? And so, as Dr. Christo points out, is in relation to the CDC prescribing guidelines. Now, as you know, there are only guidelines. And as you know, if anybody who attended my panel the other day, we kind of gave the CDC uh, alley beating. But the reason for that is, is that I had expressed is that some of the things the CDC came up with are not bad. It's the way they went about it, their failure to involve all of these other people, and some of the dangers associated with some of those recommendations. But the thing is, is that, is the dose too high? Well, we go back to this notion is that, is this high dose good for the patient? Is it appropriate to be, that's something you need to ask clinically, legally, as well as ethically. Is there some alternative treatment that is just as effective? And, or are you tapering down because the CDC told you to? That's the wrong thing to do. Because we, what we want to be is patient-focused. And if the other thing is when we talk about ethics and this notion of justice, I'll tell you what is unjust, and that is this, the, the recommendation that we should explore non-pharmacologic treatments without the availability of many of those treatments being funded by insurance. We also, you talk about injustice is this lack of pain research for all these other alternative treatments. So it's almost like they're saying, let them eat cake. That is wrong. There's a saying that Justice Stuart Potter said, I don't know what pornography is, but I know it when I see it. And I think the first CDC guideline in regards to the dose, in, in regards to morphine, et cetera, is that it's very important that, it, that you use the clinical experience and document it. Opioids shouldn't be your first choice, shouldn't be your last choice. The dose shouldn't be your first choice, your last choice. But it should be a clinical choice, and you document it clearly in the chart. You know, the, the problem I have the greatest trouble with the CDC guidelines is, as far as I could tell, uh, they're a guideline without any expiry date. And we know that no guideline uh, is without negative unintended consequences. And so when we're talking about a guideline, most credible guidelines have a life expectancy of 18 to 24 months, at which time an expert panel will be uh, impaneled again, and they will look at both the intended as well as the unintended consequences. It irks me when a state like New York makes a dramatic change in the availability of prescription opioids and then pauses and says, who could possibly have expected that a bunch of these people would turn to heroin and overdose and die. I mean, the answer to that is anyone with half a brain, anybody who does this for a living, and if you had taken time to ask, the, the reality is if you're offering solutions that don't exist 
and you're arbitrarily limiting uh, the availability of a drug, you're controlling the practice of medicine. And if you do it at a regulator's level or you do it at a um, perhaps a state medical board level where you, you bring experts in, you know, and experts are either anointed, appointed, or earned. And many of the people who are sitting in judgment of you are appointed or anointed. They're not earned experts. They're not experts who actually understand that what we're dealing with here is not black and white, it's gray. So in deference to the ethics, I, I think the status quo is often a place where a lot of people hang out and die. And the status quo is, well, you know, when I ran out of medications on Friday, my pain did go to 20 out of 10 on Saturday. And on Monday, when I got my opioids refilled, it went back to 9.5 out of 10. That's not a win, guys. That's evidence that unrestricted withdrawal, either subtle, early, or objective and late, causes amplification of all types of pain. And we've got to start thinking that way, and we've got to educate our patients around that and say, I know it's scary, but let's give it a try. So I, I, I don't know whether that uh, seems reasonable, but in my mind, on the one hand, this draconian line in the sand uh, may be an opportunity, but if you ultimately end up going before the courts because your state has chosen to make it a law, rather either through policy or, or through regulation, I think that's one of those situations where maybe uh, Stephen is suggesting we need to have a voice that says, no, that's not acceptable. Dying of a heroin overdose is as dead as dying of a prescription drug problem. And I think we lose sight of the fact that just because our name isn't on the, pres on the prescription pad doesn't make it okay. If we know that the likelihood is that some of these people are going to come to desperate harm as a result, th that's not addiction. That's untenable circumstances being managed the best way a person can. Jennifer, I feel like the government may use the CDC guidelines, guidelines as a standard of care for determining whether providers are negligent. Will they? The, I think the federal government will use the CDC materials in criminal prosecution, which does not have a negligence standard. It far exceeds negligence. But the regulators at the state level are likely to use them in a negligence capacity as well as a licensing capacity. The federal government could use them in DEA regulatory proceedings to take, suspend or revoke a registration, which doesn't necessarily ground in negligence, but there could be a demonstration of that. I just wanted to say that, if remember my example, the fear, the defiance, I think these dosing levels are a regulator exemplification of fear. They're afraid, they're under pressure just like you are, that was their knee-jerk reaction, they thought that they were informed, they aren't, it's pretty obvious. There is going to be legal risk for exceeding the doses in states where they have put into rule or policy dosing levels and attached to dosing levels a statement as to what you should be doing or what you shall do as you arrive at them. So the legal risk there is that in some states that have rules, they don't say you can't go above them. There is a state that does say that, that's Maine. But other states say that when you get to 80 milligram morphine equivalent, you shall consider a consult, you shall revisit face-to-face -face with the patient. There would be legal risk if you didn't do that. So it's easy, you're doing that stuff anyway, just 
understand that that's the toll booth in your particular state. If you're in Maine, I think we're going to have to go back and push really hard at what Steve was talking about. The, the other thing that's important to remember is many of you in the audience are, are specialists who take the, the toughest of the tough, the more difficult cases. The danger in a state, in my mind, where there is latitude, where you shall versus where you should consider, is that if all of your patients or the vast majority of your patients exceed the guidelines, then you could be considered a defiant doctor as opposed to a thoughtful and careful practitioner who's weighing the pro and con. Um, it, it may seem difficult because, well, I only take the worst of the worst. But even the worst of the worst often get to high doses of opioids, not because that, that's what they need, but because that's what the miracle of tolerance allows them to tolerate. And so this is one, one of the reasons why a drug like buprenorphine can provide you such incredible opportunities because although it has limits as to how far it can reach, uh, as compared to methadone, for example, we say of methadone, no sense of humor. If you screw up with methadone, you're dead. Buprenorphine can take a joke. And buprenorphine has a reach that appears limited, but it's often well in excess of what a patient who was on enormous doses of morphine really need rather than what they got to over that stairway to heaven that many of our patients find themselves on. Let's take some questions. Yes, over there in the orange shirt. Yeah, <laughs> I have two comments. One is about 30, almost 40 years ago when I was an anesthesiologist, one of the first things we learned was the, an adequate dose of anesthetic is enough. And I think one of the things we forget is that every drug has a bell-shaped curve in terms of its efficacy. And there's 2.5% at either end. And there's some people who are going to take either because they're very big and require larger doses, or they're very small and require much less. And I think that's the kind of thing we have to estimate and take into consideration when we're prescribing these medications. There's, it's a pharmacologic principle. Some people need more. Some people need less. The, the challenge with that, though, as an anesthesiologist, is when you and I are engaged in a one-to-one -one relationship with a patient over a very, very proximate period of time, it's intense, it's absolutely precise, and it's one of the reasons why cardiologists don't do well with propofol with stars, and we would probably do okay, right? <laughs> the, the reality is what you're saying is true, <laughs> is true, but is it practical? And I, I know my wife is a very caring and compassionate family doctor, and I remember to her study group I once said, well, one of the things you should always ask is, how long, uh, you know, before, how do you feel before you take your first dose? How do you, take, how do you feel half an hour after your first, uh, your first dose, and how do you feel two and a half hours after that, two to three hours? And I said, based on their response, you'll get a sense of whether it's pharmacologic, psychologic, or otherwise. And she said, well, how would I know that? I said, well, based on onset times of drugs. And she looked at me like I was going to have a real tough dinner ahead of me. <laughs> because she had no clue that a person who says, well, my controlled release morphine, about three minutes after it hits my lips, my pain plummets from 14 out of 10 to 2.5. Well, what's that message? The message is not pharmacologic, the message is psychologic, it's please don't rock the boat, it's a lot of different things. 
On the other hand, something that starts to onset around half an hour and mitigates withdrawal and so on is much more pharmacologically driven. These are subtleties that I quite respectfully think most doctors don't have the ability to do in two to three minutes where you're trying to build um, a lot of information in a short period of time. I think we have to figure out where those standard deviations are and then as Jennifer, I'm, I'm thinking would agree, know when to refer on to other people. Yeah, the CDC guidelines should have taken that into account, that there's a bell-shaped curve. There's, they're far short of perfect. <laughs> yes, right over there, to, to his left. The uh, one word that hasn't come up so far, pardon the hoarseness, is pharmacogenomics. You know, we're talking about tenfold differences in response, analgesic effect, based on pharmacogenomic issues or pharmacogenetic issues. And certainly the CDC guideline does not want to address that. I was part of the Washington State 2015 guideline writing committee, the one dissenting vote. When I brought up word pharmacogenomics, the five people there from PROP, who also happened to be at the CDC guideline writing committee meetings, they said the word pharmacogenomics is not going to appear in our document. And I think that's really critical. So Dr. Feudin and Dr. Arkoff and I, if I have a voice tomorrow, we'll be talking about pharmacogenomics and help put some of this into a different context. You know, it's ironic. This is called the medical Stasi, and I am right in the dead center of three bright lights that are burning holes into my forehead. <clears throat> and I can't read your lips from here, but I think I got your, your sense uh, that pharmacogenetics is something we c should consider. And undoubtedly, we need to consider that. The question is, we, do we need to consider that at the clinical level, or do we need to consider it at the research level? And personally, I think it's a research tool. And I think there are lots of interesting things that pharmacogenetics can tell us. Um, but I would say right now, the least important thing they uh, are going to do is guide uh, drug choices. Because if you have a situation where a person is doing well on a drug that the test somehow suggests is not as good as it could be because the 2D6 pathway is inhibited or whatever, 3A4, whatever the pathways are that we're considering, we're not going to stop the treatment simply because some theoretical test has indicated it might be less uh, than efficacious. On the other hand, there's some evidence that certain genetic uh, markers may predict the increased risk of substance use disorder. And in a situation like that, if that could be demonstrated, then these incidental exposures to opioids, as Steve Pasek said yesterday, it's neither necessary nor sufficient. It is necessary to be exposed to alcohol to become an alcoholic, but it's not sufficient to become an alcoholic. So I, I'm sure there will be a role. But in my mind, it, it's a not ready for prime time. That doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. Doesn't, in our monograph, we uh, put a section on pharmacogenetics for urine drug testing. But we certainly don't feel it's the eminent solution to inadequate uh, SSRI responses, for example. Okay, one more question, and then I'm going to go to the next question after that, OK? I think it was a very insightful comment that you made that we can wean them down on the opiates, and then they just go over to to heroin and then they overdose. I think one of the key um, pluses of this conference is that it tells us other things that are involved in contributing to their pain, like using doxepin for sleep or using, trying to get people to exercise more or if, as you, if you're going to be weaning, um, doing all kinds of other things that may be, that may be assisting 
and, and it'll be different with one patient versus another, like cognitive behavioral therapy or mindfulness or all this other stuff. But I think that if we're going to, if, if any of us are going to be trying to wean people, we better find some, some other way to deal with their pain so they don't just go straight to heroin and then they do the same thing. But, but you do know that some people, with, and I'm not talking about people who are doing well, who are functioning, whose life be improved by a steady state of opioids but some people who are on clearly un inarguably less than adequate treatment plans where opioids are on high doses often do better off of opioids than on them and and it's naive to think that because I'm the big poobah in my community if you can't win with me you can't win with anyone again that arrogance will get you into deep doo-doo with lawyers because the fact is Sometimes all your patient needs is someone to dare to ask the question, are these part of the problem or are they part of the solution? And this assumption that because your pain went up on running out of opioids and then seemed to come back down, even though it's not adequate at 9.5 out of 10, is evidence of opiate responsiveness, is a misunderstanding of the pain uh, threshold that results from uh, loss of tolerance. So, so we have to be aware that one of the side effects of chronic opiate therapy that any anesthesiologist in here will acknowledge is it lowers your pain tolerance. If you have a total knee that's coming in that's a virgin with no opioids, they're a challenge to manage pain-wise, but they're, they're not that difficult. If they come on in, in high-dose opioids, they're going to be a nasty deal to manage because you've essentially saturated the system with the mu agonists that otherwise would be used for acute pain. So we have to think these things through a little bit more clearly. We have to recognize we don't have evidence base for a lot of what we do. So let's dare to ask the question, might you do better with less than more? Because more is, for, for many of us in the audience, has been shown to be less than adequate. It just keeps going up and up and up and eventually the coroner calls if you're really bad and unlucky or the family calls and, and uh, you, you miss it by that much. But you know what, if you miss it by that much and then you reintroduce the drug, the next time is often not as forgiving. And I've been involved in those coroner's cases. It's a really tragic situation because nobody thought maybe off the opioid would have been better than on the, the opioid. Good. Let me, uh, let's talk now about inheriting patients on opioids. And Jennifer, I want to start with you on this. What legal responsibility do we have to maintain opioid therapy in patients whom we inherit? You have the right to say yes, you have the right to say no, and it must be tailored to the individual needs of the patient based on a proper evaluation. Um, if an inherited patient walks in and insists that they walk out with the exact same dose that they walked in on, that could be a danger sign to you. You are obligated by your licensing to evaluate that person. And rubber stamping, because you think you can control it, defiant, you know, not doing anything because you're afraid of losing the patient or the patient might say to the board, gosh, they abandoned me, they didn't take care of me, that's fear. You've got to find that middle ground and see what's right for that individual. So um, you have the right to say no. You have the right to say, I need to slow down with you. I realize you've been used to this type of treatment. Um, here's what I'm going to do. Let's ha talk about this today and then take control. 
I'm not going to give you 30 days with. I'm going to do this. If you're uncomfortable or you don't think that it's right for the patient, you don't have enough information is usually the place that everybody gets in trouble. You don't have all of the prior records from the inherited individual. You want them. You need them. You need to order diagnostics. But because of the whole mess and hamster mill that everybody's on, it doesn't get done. When that doesn't get done, medical experts will comment upon that, especially if there's a bad outcome. Yes, and that happens to me over and over again, that patients will come to me, primary care is refusing to prescribe, they want me to continue the opioid. I have no information. I have no urine drug monitoring data. I, have, you know, I don't know what their history has been like with respect to the opioid, and they're pressuring me pretty heavily to continue the opioid. It's helped me. It's helped me for two years. Why would you want to stop this therapy? And I know you've talked about this, too. What are your thoughts on it? Well, I think there's a decision that you have to look at when a patient, inherited patient comes into your office. You have to say the, the opioids or the regimen that they're on, is it rational pharmacotherapy that I could live with based on my history and evaluation and, and the information I know? Is it rational pharmacotherapy that needs a little tweaking? Or is it what we call desperation uh, pharmac uh, pharmacology in which you wouldn't prescribe it at any time, any place? Don't be forced into prescribing something that you're uncomfortable prescribing. Just to add to that, um, if you think of the inherited pain patient uh, who's on polypharmacy as being like a night on call, uh, where you're being asked to, uh, with far less than enough information, take on the role of, of your colleague in terms of managing that patient, they're either going to ask you to do exactly what you would do some variation, as Howard said, of what you would do, or you can't do it because of a variety of things that the other person may not have either been aware of or um, in retrospect got away with, but if things turn badly on your script, you're going to be uh, held accountable. For example, uh, a person who comes to you and says, I want uh, uh, Percocet, I want six months of it at a time, uh, you may not feel quite comfortable to do that, so four would be fine, because you don't know me. Um, and, and you take a few minutes to say to the, to the patient, well, tell me what your pain's like when you wake up in the morning. They say, geez, it's hell. You know what, I feel like an old man or an old woman. Uh, and you say, well, how long you know, does Percocet um, last for you? And they say, I can set my watch just about an hour and a half, maybe two hours tops. Now, you could say in that chart of the patient uh, doctor that you're, you're covering for. Idiot doctor is over-prescribing short-acting opioids, clear evidence of withdrawal-mediated pain, cannot in good conscience prescribe that. That, I think, uh, Jennifer, would consider a bad uh, documentation. On the other hand, you can say, concerned about withdrawal-mediated pain, inquired of patients, response suggests that the duration of action has become inadequate, suggests reconsidering the value of short-acting immediate release opioids. Now, instead of giving six months, you give a week or you give a few days just to cover them until they can see their doctor. And you may have given that colleague the opportunity, the impetus, to initiate change. On the other hand, the patient's got renal failure and they've been prescribed demonol, demerol, meperidine. And in everybody who uses Demerol, everybody produces normaparidine, which is seizuregenic at the right level for every individual who uses it. It's absolutely contraindicated in renal failure or renal compromise. The fact that they may have gotten away with it for whatever reason with their previous doctor would make it indefensible, in my opinion, if you wrote the script and they went out and had a grand mal seizure. 
So your opportunity there is to educate, to clarify, and perhaps to temporize. But the challenge here is simply accepting the status quo. And if a patient comes to you as a new patient and says, I want my parking validated, doc, that's the only reason I'm here. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean they're an addict. It doesn't necessarily mean they've got ulterior motives. It may be fear-based. It may be a lot of things. But in my estimation, it's a missed opportunity because you have the opportunity to revisit the appropriateness of the pharmacotherapy and optimize it. Very few people will come to you after 10 years with one doctor where there isn't an opportunity for optimization. And I think that's where you want to build that relationship, perhaps only prescribe small amounts. Um, if the doctor sends the patient to you with a little bow on their forehead that says, you will now prescribe for me, I just say to the patient, that's the one thing I won't do. I know how to be part of your problem. I want to be part of your solution. So what I'll do is I'll call your colleague, my colleague, and I'll explain that if they wrote the last script for narcotics, probably from a legal perspective, they're on the hook for the next script. But you have come, you are engaged, and I'm going to work with you. And those are things that should give your previous doctors some confidence that a solution is around the corner. But I would, I would never accept a person who was dumped on me as the doctor said you would prescribe everything for me from now on. I just clarify that right out of the blocks. And that's in Canada, so I surely hope you wouldn't do that in the States, right? Okay, uh, well, in light of this, I mean, it's foreseeable in light of the current environment that inherited patients is the number of which are going to only increase. Is that I have certainly have anecdotal data that um, these chronic pain uh, people and the people are in pain who are getting discharged, uh, they're being tapered down, uh, they're being told we don't treat chronic pain. And so the question that I have for you to consider is what role have your colleagues uh, played in this problem of getting rid of these patients and dumping them on somebody else. And that certainly does not solve the problem. And there was, there was, uh, there was this one uh, story I'd heard about this woman who she was required, the reason why her provider dumped her is that she was required to come in every 30 days for a urine tox screen. She couldn't afford it to come in every 30 days. And so he ultimately um, terminated her. Um, she, uh, of course, could not get any prescription drugs. She subsequently lost her job and she lost her house, and she's living in a car. These are some of those consequences. So become part of the solution. If, if there's this increase in inherited patients, why? Is there something that we're doing that needs to be solved? Um, and, um, and take action. Say something about it. The question you have to ask is, the drug, is the patient abusing the drug, or is the drug abusing the patient? And that could be the latter. And then if you explain to the patient, they may be willing to work with you. The other thing, a weakness of the CDC guidelines, is there's nothing, absolutely nothing in there in regards to the inherited patient, which is, I think, a major deficiency. Questions about the inherited patient? Yes. Uh, do we still have the microphone? Okay, great. This is just in regards to uh, what Doug was saying about um, inheriting these patients and reevaluating whether or not the opioid management was appropriate at the time because I do think that this is that opportunity for most of us to be able to discuss that with a patient. And it's not uncommon for me to inherit, unfortunately, these patients who may be on 200, 300 milligram equivalents of morphine per day and have that discussion with the patient about low-dose naltrexone, for example, and 
and use that as an opportunity to say, well, you know, this may in fact be better for you or as, you know, equivalent, but you have to come off of these opioids for me to be able to prescribe this medication for you because they're contraindicated at, at the same time. And what's interesting is that oftentimes I'll have patients who will come to me who, even though they've come off of 200, 300 milligrams of, of these morphine equivalents per day and are on low-dose naltrexone, for example, and I'll ask, so how, how, you know, how do you feel? And some of them will say, I feel even better, doc, this is great. And other, others will say, you know, actually, I feel just as bad. And I'll say, really? So you're trying to tell me that, and th they take it as a failure, but I look at this and I say, wait a second, so you're trying to tell me that 4.5 milligrams of naltrexone is as good for you as 300 milligrams of oxycodone? And then they're like, wait a minute, I didn't think of it that way. So this is exactly what I, I you know, wanted to, to Yeah, and, and, and the other thing with that is it takes 30 seconds to say yes when you're writing a script. It takes about 30 minutes to say no. And, you know, the glib answer is use your time wisely. That's the way the rest of the punchline to that clinical pearl is. But the reality is a lot of patients, when they finally do level out and fly right, when you get them off of benzos, when you get them clear thinking, they become very critical. Uh, of the clinician who continued to prescribe. And, you know, my, my approach had always been to say, well, you know, in fairness, there's a very good chance you asked. Uh, and you may even, even at times ask fairly adamantly. And, and then the patient says, but you knew what to do. Why, why didn't they do that? And, you know, to your credit, you're in this conference because you want to know more than you currently know in order to do a better job. So just respect the fact that status quo is very rarely the best of a bad situation. It's just a bad situation if the person isn't winning. And a group called Next of Kin will, uh, will hire a lawyer to prove that point to you if you're not careful. Okay. I have two questions. The first one regarding inheriting uh, patients. What if you're in a special clinic is your colleague that uh, left the practice, then those patients are actually inherent within your clinic. Uh, do you need to go through uh, extensively, or you, uh, the assumption is that it's a returning patient, you really can't really ex uh, spend that much time with the patient. Well, how do you deal with that? The second question is that I, I work in Washington because the legalization of marijuana use I feel like a cop between a rock and a hard place in terms of uh, allowing patients to use marijuana because they keep challenging me, well, it's all legalized. What's the big deal? To, to the first point about um, do you have a duty in picking up the new patient to, to um, look at things more critically than simply a returning patient as if you were the same doctor carrying on the same information? In my opinion, clinically, you do have that duty. Uh, if you continue on with a bad plan that somebody else implemented, um, the, the courts and certainly the, the uh, state medical boards will hold you responsible. Equally, if you're a primary care doc and I tell you to do something absolutely stupid by any reasonable measure, but because I'm a, a, a well-published author and you do it and it goes wrong, you are actually responsible as an independent practitioner to use common sense when interpreting my recommendations. The other caveat to this is a lot of patients are stable in their doctor or, or mid-level's minds, not because they are, but because they've really never looked closely enough to determine that they're not stable. 
Uh, for example, do they ever run out of medications early? No. But then you ask, well, what's the most you've ever had to take in 24 hours? And you find out it's two times or three times what they would normally use. They're borrowing from tomorrow to pay for today. A lot of people are drug-free because nobody looked in their urines. You do a urine drug screen on that person and you start finding things that should be there not there and things that shouldn't be there in, in place, you have to tighten the boundaries and reevaluate the appropriateness of making the decision to continue. I don't think simply a doctor leaving you with a bunch of inherited patients puts you off the hook for doing the right thing. It doesn't. In the state of Washington, MQAC has no sense of humor about that or marijuana. So what about the marijuana question, though, in terms of, I get, is your question related to opioids and marijuana? <laughs> Howard. Well, again, it's my opinion that it's your decision whether you want to prescribe to that patient because there is the look bad in your chart to say that you're prescribing a legal controlled substance when you know the patient's taking an illicit substance. And that could get you into trouble, whether you like it or not. Let me, let me give you one serious comment, and that is in a short time, you will almost certainly have a drug available to you called Sativex. And Sativex is an, a THC CBD, one-to-one -one mixture, uh, that's called Sativex because it's sativa extract. So it's cannabis sativa extract, and it's manufactured in the UK. It's been available in Canada for over 10 years, and its primary indication is for the management of neuropathic pain associated with multiple sclerosis, but it's used uh, more broadly than that now. About a third of the patients do brilliantly with it, about a third not too much difference, and then a third it, get, it seems to get worse. The usual expectations with a new drug. but. I'm hoping that somewhere in the federal level of your consciousness that the, some common sense comes to play in here because you can't have a system where it's illegal in one sense and then permissible in another without leaving you guys totally confused at all levels as to what is or is not the right thing to do. But here's the caveat to that. And the caveat is that a lot of people who don't believe that there's a marijuana problem or that marijuana cannot be dependency producing or that marijuana is not a drug of abuse that, is, that merits treatment are talking about a drug that they remember from the 60s or 70s where it was 2 or 3% THC. It's now up to 40, 45, in some cases 48% THC, nearly 1% cannabidiol. So we're looking at the same molecule but completely different drugs. And I've, I've seen people lose everything through marijuana. They've lost their jobs, they've lost their families, they've lost their self-respect. And when they get treated, they do better. So again, Putting your head in the sand and not testing for it uh, implies a sense of indifference. And I think testing for it and working with the patient and saying, well, you know, what would your life be like without marijuana? Many of them will tell you they can't imagine their life without marijuana. They honestly would give up anything but marijuana. Uh, well, what, what would that include? My wife, my kids, everything. I'd give up everything. It wouldn't be fair, but I would because I'm not going to stop pot. That's a treatable condition. That's an ADA opportunity, Americans with Disabilities. Uh, but how you document it is critical. Because if you underestimate the, the negative impact of marijuana and its potential, you're going to get into situations like you have in, uh, 
in the West where they're setting a, a level of THC, acceptable THC at five nanograms per milliliter in operating a motor vehicle. And if you're in excess of five nanograms, you are legally impaired. You're driving while intoxicated. Problem is, everybody who uses marijuana regularly, whether for medicinal or recreational purposes, will be in excess of five nanograms per, per liter. And so the problem with that is the judicial system has essentially said, yeah, you can call it legal if you want, but you can't drive. So it, it's constructive dismissal in a sad way. Jennifer, question for you on that. Uh, what should clinicians consider then if they're going to, if a patient is using marijuana, I guess recreationally or medicinally, and we're considering opioid therapy in that patient? in terms of risks? I love these questions. <laughs> um, all right, the medical marijuana first. So you have a patient that you know has a medical marijuana card, and you're not the provider of the medical marijuana, but you're the pain management individual who has to decide whether to prescribe the opioid. Your DEA registration and your professional licensing from a legal perspective it's about the opioid. Does it belong with the person who's using the medical marijuana? To determine that, coordination of care would be important to help justify your decision. Trying to find out who the provider of the medical marijuana card is and dialogue with them, document that kind of stuff, and then explain your rationale for why you've decided to go forward or not go forward. Both ways are important in terms of decision making. In a state that does have medical marijuana, that type of approach is more likely to protect your decision making and assuming you have everything else lined up in your practice in a fairly reasonable, responsible fashion, typically the feds will stay out of that. It's when there's other problems that are obvious then they come into that and even in a medical marijuana situation, the feds are about the opioid, not the medical marijuana as much, should you have given it. So that's that way. When it comes down to street use or where you can't distinguish, obviously, um, you know, they don't have a medical marijuana card, you're going to have to proceed, uh, I think, a lot differently from a legal perspective, but everything that the clinicians have been saying up here still applies. You have to go and figure out why the person's using the marijuana. What are they willing to give up? Are they willing to give up the opioid for the marijuana? Why are they asking you for the opioid? Is it justified? Is it... Are you going to be able to get a colleague to support you? And I do want to take just a second and say this. In the legal world, in the courtroom, regardless of administrative, criminal, civil, it doesn't matter. You have to think proactively about how you approach your staff on these issues, as well as your patients and your documentation, because every one of those things and people can end up as witnesses against you or for you. And the way that you handle these things in terms of, you know, bringing everybody along and having some like-mindedness is really important. And it probably, that comment relates back a little more to the inherited patient within the practice. A lot of times there are not the same sort of philosophy or approaches to prescribing opioids or dealing with opioids and marijuana, et cetera, within the practice. And you really want to make those things in a way that uh, invites witnessing for you instead of against you. And so go down the clinical route, but always remember that your registration and your license are governed from a regulatory perspective and that it is about the opioids and whether that's properly placed with the patient or not.
just add a brief comment here is that uh, a potential opportunity here to improve patient care and, and, and justice, for that matter. Uh, th there are certainly uh, talk of active ingredients in marijuana that could be beneficial, that it could actually result in a reduction of opioid dosage. That would be a positive outcome. That would be an alternative. But this is very much uncharted territory. One of the challenges is, is that the DEA will keep, uh, mar keeps marijuana in Schedule 1, and their claim is kind of a catch-22, is that they say, well, it's in Schedule 1. Well, the problem is no there's no research, you know. And but the challenge is, is that because the DEA hasn't been approving research, it's been in Schedule 1. So it's a, it's a, it's a notorious uh, catch-22 situation. So what you can do to help is that you can contact your state medical boards and see to make sure they have a policy about this. So they, they address these very good issues about co-prescribing. Um, and secondly, is about to encourage that research um, to, to explore this potential that could actually result in uh, better optimal care. And, and let me say one thing as a, a topic that I often talk about, it, can, cannabis versus cannabinoids, the politics of medical marijuana. Without any indictment against marijuana or pro and con from a societal perspective, governments have taken the thorny issue of per people's perceptions of their right to smoke a herb, a, a, a product that is available on the street. I, ironically, cocaine is also available as a plant material on the street. The reality is they've sidestepped that by putting it into our um, our waste pan, as it, as it were, because the argument of smoking anything for your health in 2016, I do not think will prevail. And even worse, uh, a drug with no concentration, a drug with no clear indications or contraindications, and uh, a way of, of no means of controlling the route of administration, it, it doesn't really qualify as a drug from the perspective of uh, of the D, of well, FDA, DEA, drug uh, protectorate in Canada. The reality is cannabinoids have value, but cannabinoids and cannabis are not the same thing. And I, I'm not saying it's wrong to grow marijuana. I'm not saying it's better to have a drink or not to have a drink and have a joint instead. I don't care about that. What I care about is the implication of a doctor being asked to endorse something as a prescription item and the implications that that might have down the road for you. Uh, I think you have to separate cannabis from cannabinoids and, and as Stephen says, encourage research into cannabinoids. But you have, in Canada, we have Sesamet, which is primarily a CBD active receptor uh, molecule. Uh, it's known as Sesamet. Um, uh, Nabilone is the, the active name. Dronabinol, Marinol. We have Sativex, which you will have, I think it's in phase three studies right now. All of these things are going to be available to you. And if you have the choice of a patient who says, but, mar but smoking marijuana is the gold standard for me, take a good history and you'll find that they were rip snorting pot smokers of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Very few little 80-year-old women who never smoked anything in their life are saying, this is the best thing since sliced bread. They're not doing that. They're not doing that. So don't get caught in the trap that cannabis and cannabinoids are the same thing. In my opinion, they're not. We're almost out of time. Let me ask this question, and I'll try to get to a couple others, okay? Uh, this is a question from the audience. What, what is your perspective on the use of abuse deterrent formulations in patients who 
you know, are candidates for opioid therapy or in certain patients who have an abuse, um, substance abuse history, or just use them in all patients now? I know it's a, it's, a bi- it's a big question, but I wanted you to try to tackle that before we end. We don't have good data about abuse-resistant formulations. There's no good data. And the majority of, of, of what we call long-acting opioids, which are just immediate-release uh, op- immediate immediate opioids and clever delivery systems, is the fact that over 90% you're taking three or four whole pills. So only a small percentage try to get the drug out of the pill and snort it and shoot it. And I think we need more data on this. And I think the, that's what it, I think was the start of our current heroin epidemic with laced with fentanyl, is the Oxycontin became harder to get it out, and so they went to heroin. Yeah, I, th- I think just to add to that, uh, my biggest fear is that in five or ten years, we're going to be writing a paper similar to Universal Precautions that outlines how the medical profession got caught off guard by thinking that a clever delivery system would somehow uh, mitigate meaningfully the intrinsic nature of mankind. We, we have all got risk. The, the question should never be, when you're looking at a patient, is there risk? Unless you're a pathologist and it's an autopsy situation, if you've got a pulse, you've got a risk. The question is, is the risk low, medium, or high, and then how can we best mitigate that risk? And, you know, a lot of the various delivery systems have uh, phase one, phase two, phase three uh, evidence of efficacy, but none of them have the magical fourth division which says once they've been released into the wild, they accomplish the goals that we intend. Firstly, nobody's studying uh, the risk uh, evaluation and mitigation strategies to see if they accomplish the goals we have uh, in place. They're kicking the tires in the worst possible way because we don't even know what it means. We go on Arrowid, we go on Blue Light Special. These are websites who will tell you what professional people who make their mission in life uh, out of compromising pharmaceuticals will tell you about the pro and con of every formulation. We, we learned about transdermal fentanyl when it was form, fill, and seal. You were as likely to die as get high when you misuse that system. By going to the matrix, now you have a titratable product. If you take a six millimeter disc of matrix fentanyl, whether it's name brand or generic, and you heat it and you extract the fentanyl from that disc, there's 155 micrograms in each six millimeter disc. Everybody in this audience will survive a 155 microgram hit of fentanyl. Some will survive it better than others, but it it isn't likely going to kill you. Now you've made it titratable, and you've actually given the street the ability to do all the things that they wish they could do with chiclets, with uh, duragesic patches, that could never actually be done, because you'd have to freeze them in liquid nitrogen, and it just didn't work. But now we've got something you can put in a little disc and sell at street corners. If you think that abuse deterrent or abuse resistant systems will um, contribute to a solution, you may well be right. If you think they will solve a problem, I think you're naive and probably buying into a, a little bit of swampland that's being sold to you. Just quickly here, I mean, certainly ethical issues come up with ADFs. Is the fact that we not all of our drugs are ADF? Sometimes choices have to be made. Um, and so you say, well, what's best for society? Well, best for society, maybe an ADF, but is that really best for the patient? You know, the best for society argument is a reduction, perhaps, in harm. 
but what impact could it have on the patient? And when we talk about these collateral impacts, for example, are ADFs more expensive? Secondly, is if you prescribe an ADF to somebody, in what context? Is it workman's comp? Big red flag. Why is this guy getting an ADF and not your other patients? Is that something that we should be concerned about? Because uh, insurance companies know it's a very expensive proposition to take on somebody with an addiction issue. Very good. I think I'm going to have to stop. I, I, know, you, I know you have multiple questions. Um, the panel's going to be here. I want to thank you very, very much for contributing. I want to thank the panel for an excellent discussion.